Hi, this is Sonia Wolga, and welcome to Bookish, a podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this episode is British actor and director Jared Harris, perhaps best known for his roles as Lane Price on the AMC series Mad Men and King George VI in the Netflix series The Crown. He's been nominated multiple times for Emmys, SAGs and BAFTAs for these roles. He's also played opposite Brad Pitt, Jude Law and Daniel Day-Lewis in films such as The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, Lincoln and Allied. He will soon be appearing in the lead role of the AMC anthology series The Terror. Many years ago, Jared played the title role in my husband's play More Lies About Jersey and has remained a beloved friend of ours ever since. Fun fact, Jared got himself ordained online so he could marry us at our wedding. It was so fun to get him all to myself for an hour at his lovely home in LA, and many thanks to his wife Allegra for sharing him so generously after so many months apart. How was that? God, it was good. Was it fun? Yeah, Queen and Adam Lambert. He he did really well, but you really missed. I've never seen Queen live. God, you missed Freddie Mercury. Really? Yeah, and then you also understood because such a there's such a thing about performing I mean I mean and Alan Lambert obviously is, he's a performer but maybe it's because the songs weren't his or it was still a little bit like uh, a child walking around in their father's big shoes do you know what I mean mm. their parents big shoes yeah. like, it didn't quite it was still too big for him you know but um, I mean he sort of filled it in different ways but just sh- surely in the whole the sh- purely in the whole sort of um, thing that Freddie Mercury did where he the showmanship the whole song went mm. through his him you know and that's obviously you go well because he wrote the damn things and with the others and he understood exactly what the feeling was about and he really had all that it was Adam Lambert was a little bit he was really good it was fantastic mm. but also just not the same having heard them seen them on the radio you know heard them on the radio seen them on the TV not the same mm. just the, the the power of those the songs filling that space and it really when it comes down to it's just four people mm. I mean and two of them are dead so it's the original two members of the band mm-hmm. and then other people's sessions filling in for what's you know but the amount of sound that comes out of those mm-hmm. th- basically three people mm-hmm. was just unbelievable amazing were you in a box yeah friend of Allegra's she's friends with the wife of the drummer oh wow so good seats yeah they were in the garden oh nice really nice lovely yeah okay I was recording all of this just because and we may as well just keep going because I put a um, I I do an intro afterwards I add that at the end Um, Jared Harris what are you reading at the moment Uh, script Okay, anything good? <laughs> it is actually. It's uh it's an HBO uh series called Chernobyl. Mm. And it's about Chernobyl. I, I would yeah. I would guess. And uh So a comedy then. Yes. Really, <laughs> really funny. Yeah. Sight splitting. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's just one of those stories when you're reading it and seeing how uh, different contributions towards making what was a massive disaster incredibly worse. Mm. And the heroism that was involved with the people who pretty quickly realised that there were people who just looked from the edge of the roof 
into the open reactor core, which oh was several hundred God. feet below them. But if you just looked into it, you were dead within a week. Oh, my God. And you got reactor burn within an hour. You started wow. to get a suntan just wow. from that looking over once. That's the amount of radiation that's coming. It is incredible. Anyway, um, it's really good, really well written. Written by... Might we see you in it? I don't know. Maybe. We will see. We will see. All right. Yes, who knows? But nice to read a good thing. Really good to read. Such good... Such a relief. So nice to read good material. Yeah. And you know within a page and a half... Of course you do. ...whether you're in good hands or not. Yeah. Um, do you read novels at the same time? Or books at the same time? Or you do just tend to do I've, I've been reading three things, and they're all sort of work-related... But um, I, I've, ha- having done the, the Lincoln movie and all the research I did for that on Grant, mm. I, I got really interested in trying to do um, a little mini-series about him. Really? And I've been about talk- Grant? Yeah, and I've been talking to this person in London about it. Mm. And it's, it's a fascinating, uniquely American story as well. Also, he's one of the most maligned... Um, historical figures and presidents. Uh, he is famous for his presidency having been a disaster, the all sorts of uh, accusations of corruption surrounding his presidency. As a general, he was said, well, he was just lucky and he just threw more men at the problem than the mm. other side had and he just, you know, it was a war of attrition. And um, but, but when you start to dig into the man's story, he was selling firewood by the side of the road when the war broke out. Wow. he was so poor. They'd lost so much. And uh, eight years later, he was president of the United States. Wow. Um, I did not know that. He pulled off military manoeuvres that the only other person who pulled them off was Napoleon. <laughs> and um, Was he a historian? Was he aware yeah, of he, he was actually, doing Yeah, actually, what he was fascinated about initially was literature. Mm. And he went to West Point to become... He wanted to study mathematics. Mm. And he couldn't afford to go to school, so he went to West Point to study mathematics with the idea you serve a, you know, you do your serve, term of service in the army, and then when he leave, he'll leave there, take his mathematics degree with him, and then go teach somewhere or something mm-hmm. like that. And he got caught up in the life. And, but part of what made him so good was he was famous, actually, if, if, you, if you read his uh, field commands, they are. Incredibly brief, mm. but succinct and uh, very, very clear about mm-hmm. what he was directing you to do. And part of it was because an appreciation for language, an understanding of, uh, of um, you know, mathematics was a different word I was looking for. It's escaped me. He was a quartermaster. Mm. So he understood you can't just send 50,000 people somewhere. They need, they're going to need to be supplied and you have to Rationed, explain exactly yeah. what. That all of those people are going to need for the two-week period that you're sending them to somewhere to achieve an objective, you know. Um, but his his uh, his uh, diaries, the first ten pages of the diaries are some of the most sublime writing that you've really? ever. Yeah, incredible, absolutely incredible. Somewhere up there. Do you have any aspirations to write this miniseries, or just to helmet I'm not and a writer? I find it very hard. I can read something, and um, I can understand the the shape of it and the pattern of it, mm-hmm. and where either there's missed opportunities within the, within the, the shape that they're creating, or um, you know, different. Yeah, 
have, you have d different ideas, but to take a s from a blank page, I find that very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure really what it is, is it's just something that if you, 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 you went through that process with somebody about three or four times, you would understand mm -hmm. what the structure was and how to achieve it. But I've, I've tried and, uh, you know, I always get sort of, I, mean, I try to write a play and I get to a certain point and I go, wait, what is this about? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the real art of being a writer is anyone can start. It's the real, that's what sorts the men from the boys is can you finish it? It yeah. really is. What I is mean, it about? I like, that's a really good speech and that's a good scene, but what's it about? <laughs> it's the million dollar question. Um, I loved, loved getting your book list. I really enjoyed these for, all for very different reasons. Um, do you... How, you tell me how you want to approach them chronologically. Whatever which, way. No, you tell no. me. You, whichever ones with the Whatever's the question the was list. five books that shaped you. The right. first one that you listed. Oh, I see. Chrono I see what you say. Chronologically. Yeah. So yes. uh, chronologically, in terms of what which mattered to you. I read first. I had reflections on the art of living, yeah. love, honor, and dismay. Robert Graves' Greek myths. Audition. Well, I suppose the first one that I would have read would have been the Greek myths. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I have a very clear memory of being in uh, my stepfather's house, um, Rex Harrison, mm -hmm. in Portofino over a summer and, um, and absolutely devouring this book about three times, three or four times. Did he give it summer. to you or had you brought no, it with you? No, it was... I was at Lady Cross. It's kind of a stupid reason of why I got into it. So there's a boarding school called Lady Cross. Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. It was in the south of England by Seaford in Sussex and I think it was about how many boys were there maybe 120 or something mm -hmm. and they split them up into houses mm -hmm. and the houses were Herberts and the Ropers who were two old headmasters of the school the Athenians and the Spartans and <laughs> I was in the Spartans <laughs> so you become curious about what is, where does this come from and then now and again in, in uh, history classes they start to refer to it so, and I realised that, you know, the Spartans were this sort of warrior people and it, that appeals to you as a sort of nine-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and that's, through that stupid thing, I got into Greek mythology and loved it, absolutely loved it. So it was entirely through school. Were your family readers? Was your mum? Was your dad? My was father Rex? was a massive reader. Yeah, mm -hmm. he loved it. He would disappear for days when we were down in the Bahamas normally what would happen is we'd all go down there he was really excited to see everybody for about three days and he absolutely <laughs> devoured your company and then after that he got bored of you everybody um, really and would disappear up to his room with a stack of books next to his bed a lot of the books that i have here are a lot of his old books he, he was really we're sitting in um jared's living well little study and we've got surrounded by lovely books he uh, he loved simonon um mm. uh he Joyce Beckett um did he pass his tastes onto you or did you just inherit the books later well I like Beckett I found Joyce quite tough to get into I've, I've tried to finish Portrait of an Artist I, I really love the, the first or two thirds of the book mm -hmm. I always get stuck on the bit where he he becomes obsessed with visions of hell and I, so I just mm -hmm. can't get through that mm -hmm. part of it probably because I grew up in you know Catholic boarding schools 
Um, uh, Beckett I was fascinated with. Um, uh, Dylan Thomas, he loved Dylan Thomas. A lot of his poetry is very much inspired by Dylan Thomas. Did, um, did your dad read aloud to you? He didn't read aloud when we were young, but I have some very fond memories of... Um, there were a couple of times when we were in Dublin at the same time and we'd go out on the piss and and he would you'd, you'd be in a bar and be drinking and everything chatting away and he sort of exhausted his, his curiosity about the, the people who were in there after about an hour or two he'd go come on let's go to a different place and as you walk I remember walking down from one place to another and he'd suddenly stop and he'd launch into Beckett or we'd launch into wow. Dylan Thomas and wow. stuff like that yeah incredible that's amazing but I mean apropos of a conversation you were having he wouldn't just sort of start reciting like some dreadful actor ball or something you know what I mean so um, tell me about the Greek myths why would you say they were formative what shape what was shaping about them for you well you know I think when you're you're young your imagination is it runs rampant doesn't Mm. it I mean and um, you you see and hear things everywhere and uh, I think part of it was this uh, that idea that there was this sort of other world mm. and um, in a way their sort of understanding of, of a moral code of the world probably made more sense do you know what I mean because it was kind of random their thing was the um, <laughs> you know uh, the if if you got the attention of the gods it could easily go very wrong yeah, yeah well what I always loved about the Greek gods is that they were so deeply human I yeah. mean they were as jealous and fearful yeah. and possessive and sexy as yeah. anyone I mean particularly now that I, I would recognise and I think particularly maybe if growing up with the much more binary moral code of Catholicism there would be something of a relief in this yeah. human <laughs> human other world that the Greek gods offer yeah, and it was, I guess, romantic. I wouldn't. Mm. I don't. There's nothing romantic really about. I don't think about Catholicism. Uh, I don't want to spend a whole conversation about religion, but you know what I mean. Mm. It's. It, I think uh, it's there's something romantic about it and heroic and. Um, it feels yes, like you said, it feels tangible because it is real. It is mm. they, they're human. Um, manifestations mm. uh, your brother's readers did they read them Jamie reads a lot mm-hmm. he's actually a much bigger reader than I am he, he's always reading um, I'm embarrassed to say that I I find that you read so much for work mm-hmm. it's hard <laughs> Re- reading is like work because you've got to read for work all yeah. the time and, then, and you never can get ahead of your reading I don't know how agents and managers do it yeah they have to, a weekend. They've got twenty scripts to pile through. Yeah, I don't think that's how the hell they do it. I think that's exactly how they're doing it. As every Piling single weekend, yeah, yeah, and just on treadmills yeah. and yeah, all workouts have to yeah. be dictated by can you rest a script while you do on that the workout? Machine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. It does. It takes a real toll. Uh, I also find I have to f- focus properly. I need for, to read. I need. Time set aside, mm-hmm. no distractions, mm-hmm. and they'd be able to give it a chance, and you know quite quickly whether or not 
Yeah, I'm I'm fairly ruthless these days too. I I used to be particularly since having young children and having I I read every night before I go to bed and these days I that's a window of probably 10 minutes before I'm out cold. And so and so the book better be fucking great because otherwise it's it's just yeah. done. It's done. My Kindle is full of the corpses of books <laughs> that have been <laughs> books of like 8%. I I I've just I, you should get a refund for books that you only get 8% of the way yeah. through. You really should. Um, so, so Robert Graves, The Greek Myths. Yeah, I love them. I'm really struck too how many people, uh, now that we, I'm 10 episodes in, or however many on the Go podcast. No, not necessarily to this, but have, um, not this specifically, but to mythology. Mm. That most people, not most, but a significant number, uh, have myths or... Um, the, either the Greek myths or the Roman myths or uh, some archetypal thing. Those that didn't have that have a comic book or a storybook yeah. that had a superhero, which is yeah. essentially a Greek myth sure. dressed up. Yeah. Um, it's like all of us have one in a way that, that formed our That's in the beginning childhood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After, I mean, and then, and then I suppose after that summer, then I, I was at... Uh, so downside by this point, and um, we had to do, learn learn Latin, mm. and I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around Latin, and I, I forget how it happened, but one of the boys at the school called Pierce, he took pity on me, and he lent me his translation, so that I could just copy his translation <laughs> of what, and it was we had to do a sort of Latin translation mm-hmm. every week. I, you know, I just couldn't figure it out. And he said, here, you can copy mine, just, you know, make it not look the same. Mm. So basically from that point onwards, every week I went to him and got his translation. <laughs> you know, and, he, and I could see it was becoming problematic for him. But but then I had things like I was captain of boxing. So I could sit here and go, look, I'll give you a pass and you won't have to... <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say you threatened him. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, it was kind of because I was captain of boxing, but I'd go, look, I'll take care of you, don't worry. You know, we'll, because Some people just did not want to get into the ring. You oh, know? wow. So, um, A little prison system yeah, in, the, in the mini prison. Oh, yeah. It was so great. And um, so a couple of years into it, we've come off of the O-level. We're about to go into O-levels the year before, two years before O-levels. And they decide to start a classical civilization class um, and siphon off some of the people in Latin who aren't going to, they're going to fail. So why not just mm-hmm. a different class? And the, the teacher in the class said, we're starting a new class, classical civilizations, Greek, um, Greek history, Greek mythology, Greek philosophy, Greek theater. And um, we've been asked to suggest people who, who might be uh, more interested, more suited to this class and currently in the Latin studies and Harris you are my first suggestion and I'm sure Pierce is going to be relieved (laughs) (laughs) Pierce can stop sweating bullets that's so sweet that they were onto it for the entire (laughs) year it's so great (laughs) Uh, but then you know then that really doubled down on it because you got all the history of it as well and then and Greek um, and the theatre was fascinating as well Mm, I would think and the 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 plays of uh, what is it is it Sophocles Mm -hmm. who who did all the stuff with um, uh, Socrates 
that, that there was a whole series of plays that was about Socrates and it was teaching the Socratic method through oh, was the, it, the, was the form Socrates of the drama back? and it was kind of like a, a dialogue so it was and it would um, but yeah it was, it was really uh, it sort of dug it in at that point mm. talk to me about your next book which I loved the title of um, Love, Honour and Dismay is that the one you want to do next? or do you want to yeah no that would probably be yeah, that was my mother's book I read that so I, she would have written that. So Jared's was... mother is Elizabeth Reese Harrison, and it was published in 1977. Uh, yes, she was Elizabeth. Well, Reese Williams was her. Oh, was her it? Her that was how it was listed. But on. it was Elizabeth Harris and then Elizabeth Harrison, mm-hmm. and now she's back to Elizabeth Harris again. Okay. Uh, um, so this was a book that she wrote after she was she was getting divorced. To Rex at the time, and um, and she wrote a an autobiography about her life up to that period, and essentially about her marriages to my father and to Rex. Mm-hmm. And I would have been um, it was sort of similar period. Um, again, it's actually got a fantastic sense of humour. My mother's got a, a, a really good sense of humour, and um, and she plucks these very very funny stories from her from her life and some very sad ones um, because you can see there was this great passion there particularly um, that comes across very strongly with her relationship with my father which because they met so young um, it has all of those elements how old uh, old were you when they split? Uh, gosh that's a good question it was actually it was my first year at the boarding school so I was seven Mm. Um, and when did you come to the book do you know teens 16 Mm -hmm. 17 was it embarrassing when it came out was it a thing no I was fascinated because you could actually all the questions you want to ask your parents all the answers are in there right and then you can take as long as you like reading it and rereading it and going back over it and going oh that's where they met and you can go by, go by the coffee shop, the mm-hmm. Troubadour coffee shop on the uh, Old Brompton Road. Uh-huh. By the I Court. know exactly. That's where they met. Is it really? Yeah. He was, um, he was auditioning actors for a play that he was going to put on. Mm-hmm. And my mother had gone to audition. And, um, uh, and they met. Uh, he cast her in the play. Didn't speak to her at all the whole time. <laughs> and... Um, um, and, and in the book, she says that he, it was the last day of the last performance and he came into the dressing room and um, sort of s- spoke to her not as a director for the first time mm. and said, uh, I think I'm going to miss you. Um. And, uh, and she said, I'm going to miss you too. And he said, well, you know, let's meet. And it started from there. How sweet. How but lovely. weirdly, because... We, and when Dad died, we were, I went through all of his papers, letters from from him to his parents, talking about well, I've got this going and that going. I'm producing this play. Lord Ogmore's daughter is in the cast, and she's got some very good contacts and everything. So he was completely aware. How interesting of who she was and what her contacts were, and and, and at the same time, because he was he wore scruffy jeans and no socks and sometimes no shoes and it was all about the beatnik bohemian thing and fuck the aristocracy and fuck the British and everything but there he was eyeing up the Lord's daughter I love it that's so funny did he ever talk to you about the book did you did you take the book to him or was it just your mum the touchy subject with him Mm. 
He was a touchy subject with him. I remember he got very upset about the book. and, and That she'd written it at all? Yeah, and threatened to sue her because... And this is what I was saying earlier. Because she obviously... Well, we can interpret it. Leave it interpret yourself. I have my interpretation. Rex came off in the book funnier. And in a way, more charming. Right. And he came off a lot more... Uh, 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 the, the, the danger that came off of him. Mm. But also the um the sort of the violence of the passion of right. their relationship mm-hmm. and and it was from my point of view my interpretation still unresolved mm. between the two of them in that uh, and and the fact that they remained friends all their life she was the executor of his estate and of his mm. will he trusted her implicitly that there was always that very very strong connection between them and um but it you know it, it could never they could never settle, mm. you know. So, so he was he was really upset about that, and he didn't like the way that he came off, and he thought that he he had been treated with a an an, an unkinder brush, mm. if you like, right. than he than Rex had been treated. Right. And in Rex, they were married a shorter period of time, and in Rex was, I mean, in a way, she was able to distance herself from Rex and find him funny the most narcissistic human being you've ever come across really on the planet ever did you experience that yourself as a kid did you know yeah. that when you were with him yeah you, you'd be sitting at a lunch table and if he started to tell a story and lost the audience at some point during the lunch table it didn't matter he'd carry on telling the story to an empty you know no one's paying attention to him and I, I remember at times and my brothers would all say the same thing we'd look over and we wouldn't know what to do <laughs> Because he's still telling the story and none of the adults are paying attention to anymore. So we kind of like keep an eye on him out of the corner of our eye as we're cutting up food on our plate. Because it's easy to get to the end of the story Can I say, that's the toughest crowd, man. I mean, to have to tell stories to the sons of Richard Harris, the world's greatest raconteur, is a really tough crowd. Oh, he, he wasn't telling them to us at all. He was telling them to the adults. I know, but, but yeah. still, that's a, that's a tough crowd. And, uh, and I love... I love the three of you, loyally, but we, paying attention. We were, you know, we were children, so we were a competition for him in narcissism, you right. know? Right, sure. Um, and we, you know, he didn't... He was just something that came with the package. I mean, right. He was something that came with mum. Right. And, um, but uh, he, he didn't feature in our in our minds or lives or mythology, if mm-hmm. you like, the sure. way that, our, that dad did. Right. And he couldn't compete on any level on that, so... And in fact, what he used to do is dad would tell us jokes. I remember this really clearly. He would tell us jokes and they'd be terrible, filthy, awful jokes. <laughs> and he'd always tell them to us right before because they'd split the holidays. Right. And uh, so he, we'd be with him first and then be with mum and Rex. Uh-huh. The night before, <sighs> always, the, and we didn't realise what he was doing. Tell them these terrible jokes. They'll go and repeat them Load within the a cannon. week. <laughs> Yeah, and they'll tell these jokes at the dinner table. <laughs> and, and he was, like, taking a pot shop at Mum and, and, and Rex and all their fancy friends drinking with, like, fine wine and everything yeah. like that. And we're telling jokes about tramps shitting their trousers yeah, and stuff so like that. Yeah, so good. It's so good. That's a brilliant revenge. That really is. That's inspired. I have to say, I'm, I was when I was reading about this, 
And I got your list and I was looking up the book and I see it's out of print and Allegra, your lovely wife, had generously said to me she would lend me her copy, which I think I'm going to take her up on because I would love to read this. May I borrow it? Yeah. I really would. Um, I just felt, I felt this, having lost my dad last year and all, all the extraordinary stories about him and who he was sort of with him, I, I felt such envy for having a book that you could go back and read, that you could actually have yeah. that what even even in the full knowledge that it's you know incomplete edited incomplete yeah. partial mm. all of that but still just to have that that those stories set down by the person who lived them yeah. is really something where that was like of all the books I've been given by people in their lists, this is the one book where I'm like, yeah, that's a gimme. That's a gimme of the five books that shaped you is you've got, you've got a parent's biography. It doesn't get any better. Autobiography. It doesn't get mm. any better than that. Um, the next book. Will you choose your next book? Uh, like in the chronological. Well, well, chronologically, or yeah, what, no, just what, do. Like, what makes sense? Chronologically. Um, it would have been Audition. Audition by... Michael Shurtleff. That was published in 1979. So I'm just going to tell you that I did not know this book. I knew the cover of it, and I did not know it. You have it in your bookshelf. Doesn't mean I've read it. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Means nothing. Um, I would almost attribute it to my husband, Davey, except that Davey's not an actor, so I'm not sure what he's doing with a book called Audition. So what I did was went off and researched it, and I found this great... PDF, which was the 12 guideposts mm. from Audition, which I read last night and then printed out thinking, no, I should have these in my purse. These should live in my handbag. So these really, these yeah. are great. Yeah. Um, tell me what took you to it or when or who turned so you onto it. I, at this point, I've gone to, I'm at Duke University in North Carolina and I, I having been at Downside, which is a school connected to a um, Benedictine Abbey, uh, all boys school I just wanted to get the fuck out of England yeah and so um, and I had had the same thought I thought American college I'll go to college in America because I didn't know what I wanted to do and my mother came and suggested the same thing at the same time so mm. I thought okay I, I applied to all the ones that you'd you think to apply to which would be ridiculous Harvard, Yale Princeton Brown blah 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 you know and uh, of course, got turned down by all of them. And um, and Duke, I forget, someone suggested a friend of mum's. So he just applied to Duke. It's a good school, um, and they said yes, but only because they needed to have a diverse student body as part of their school charter. So, so they needed you a certain number as of foreign students, <laughs> right? A certain number of foreign students, and I just slipped in under that quota. Mm-hmm. Although my SATs, my maths SATs, weren't nearly high enough. Um, and I, the, so the first week that you go there, uh, orientation week before the rest of the school arrives as a freshman, so you can get an idea of these, this campus, which is massive and split over sort of two, uh, you know, two separate parts of mm. the town. Um, and they, and then they would have these, uh, social mixes in the evenings with a keg of beer and pizza. So you could get to mix and know people. So you just get pissed the whole time. And at the end of the week on a Sunday, I realised, holy shit, I'm back in school. How the hell did I do this? I'm back in school. I've been in boarding school ever since I was fucking seven years old. I'm back in again. again. I've got four more years. Yeah. How did I sign up for this? And I saw this flyer on the table and it said there was a free keg of beer at Branson Theatre. 
and um, and for a mix and anyone interested in you know getting involved in the theatre. And um, I've been, you know, curious about it, obviously, from Dad's point of view, but the one time I tried to do it downside, it was just awful. I was so self-conscious and really? dreadful. Stage yeah. break? Yeah, I just, just all of it. couldn't stop sort of going, oh, look, I'm on stage in front of all these people, <laughs> you know. You know just, There's still quite just a few actors out there doing dreadful. that. But yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, I went to the Branson Theatre, I thought, I'll just think about this tomorrow, I'm going to go there's a free keg of beer. <laughs> and I ended up auditioning for a play. I ended up auditioning for Murder is Announced, I had the Christie play. And then got to know through that the director really well, who was head of the drama program. And he taught some basic level acting courses. And that was his course book. He said, oh. go and get this book. It is not just for this, but if you're interested in pursuing mm-hmm. a, a, a career as an actor, so there is no bre- better practical handbook mm. than that book and I just devoured it mm. several times and mm. still look at it you know? do you do you still look at it yeah and there's advice in there that I've always used yeah that one, one that sticks out in my mind immediately is if you're late for an audition never explain why you're late nobody wants to know about right. how much of a hard time you had getting there finally parking on the subway the yeah. tube like, who gives a toss yeah you just say, I'm sorry I'm late. I was at another audition. Oh, and brilliant. That, they know immediately <laughs> that all auditions run over and that somebody else is interested in using you, That's hiring you. That's so all good. you need to say. That's Don't say anything so else. good. I'm absolutely stealing that. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> We're going to cut that bit out of the podcast because that's just insider knowledge. Nobody need know. I loved it. I loved looking at it. I've got, I'm looking now at the um, 12 guideposts. This is one that I loved. I, I've, I think I used this, but I've forgotten about it. Um, whatever you decide is your motivation in the scene, the opposite of that is also true and should be in it. Right. I love that. I love that. I always and I always think it's such a it's such a truism as an actor. The opposite is in every scene, and yet it's something you can forget to do. And particularly in scenes where you have to yell or be mad or mm. scream at someone, mm. there's um, there's always a beat of something or someone or something that you love in that in that scene even if it's just a word or or something you're holding on to or the door handle or whatever it is but it's um well i mean i, I was just flicking through it last night and and one of the things that an example of that is um uh don't play say you're playing a character who's who's uh shy who's awkward who's an introvert mm. don't play that play someone who wants to be an extrovert yes yeah it's like the note someone never, who wants to express themselves yeah. but they're frustrated but then they can't yeah it's true it's so true it's like never you must never play drunk you must always play someone who's trying yeah. to be sober but nobody wants to be drunk I mean nobody wants to behave like a drunk person no um, it's true it's a lovely thing do you have other audition or acting books that you re- yeah, read, I, revere, I read, look at I like the, the, the Michael Chekhov book being is it To the Actor and that has the the very famous bit in there is the um, the the gesture, which mm. uh, Anthony Hopkins probably the best use of that was in uh, Howard's End hmm. when um, she's going to at the very end of it she's going to um, leave him, and her his son has murdered um, what's his name the the best. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember it um, well enough. The, the boy who years. gets um, 
Helena Bonham Carter pregnant, mm-hmm. and and uh, Hopkins's son has has killed him by accident. Mm. Has killed him, and um, and he starts to weep, but he can't he can't allow her to see it, and he puts his hand up to shield. You know, mm. it's just such a really brilliant little use of it. Mm. But he was talking about it afterwards. I read in an interview, and he goes, "Yes, I." It was I, I, the one book that he read that was meant the, the most important thing to him was was uh, the Chekhov book. The, um, the Michael Chekhov book. Yeah, yeah. Michael Chekhov. I don't know that one either. I must look at it. I haven't he's read he's acting books for a long actor. time. I'll uh, find it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the actors are Morris Karnowski. He he taught us at um, the Eugene O'Neill uh, Centre. Uh, he was the the kind of American Laurence Olivier. Right. And he always said, um, his thing was, you're not playing Hamlet, you're playing you. Mm. You've got to, it's got to be you playing the role. You mm. can't, otherwise it's, it's insane. You're, you're trying to do something you can't possibly do. You mm-hmm. cannot be somebody else. Right. But it's you experiencing that person's story. It has to be you. Mm. Um, which was very helpful. It's liberating, truly yeah. liberating. Do you, um, so after Duke, you went, did you train somewhere after that? Yeah, I, after Duke, I went to the Eugene O'Neill Centre mm-hmm. and then went to Central. Wow, so um, that was how many years of training? Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I was in, I was like a, a, in danger of being a perpetual student. <laughs> well, the Eugene O'Neill Centre, was that, was that a year? No, that was uh, like, um, it was over... Like three months, I think it was. Oh, okay. Four months. And then Central for, was that a three-year course? That was a three-year course, Wow. Yeah. Jared, that is I know, I was 28 dedication. by the time I got out. I yeah. mean, it was old. No, that's not old. It it's was. It's just dedicated to do a three-year I didn't know that thing. I wanted to do it. And you can see a lot of these people now who are, they, they knew they were from you know, kids, mm. 10 years old, and they were, they were already essentially pursuing careers by the, in their time they were in their late teens, mm-hmm. you know. Um, was your dad supportive? He he was he wasn't until he came down to Duke and I what happened at Duke was I had uh, stayed over and after I graduated because they um, they were doing entertaining Mr Sloan and they cast me as Mr Sloan mm-hmm. and I thought I'll I hadn't I'll stay and with I, yeah, and yeah I hadn't done it for, I hadn't done really much acting for a bit that I'd. I'd done a lot of it in the beginning, first couple of years. But then I tried to make a movie while I was at Duke and that just, you know. <laughs> It'll take the lifeblood out yeah. of you. So I decided I wanted to do that again. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, really, as well. And um, so anyway, I did that. And he, he, um, my mother had said, you know, you should go down and see him. He's in these plays. I was in Equus and things like that. He said, no, no, I, he didn't want to go down. Mm-hmm. He's going to be embarrassed. And um mm. So he at this point he goes, well, I've got to go down because this is the last thing he's doing. He's graduated, so he came down and he saw the movie in the afternoon that I'd made, mm. which is a crazy piece of you know piece of work, uh, all about subliminal advertising, and um, <laughs> wow, that's ambitious. <laughs> yes, for a student film yeah. on a student budget. Okay, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and. Um, and then saw the play in the evening. And I remember really clearly after... I remember hearing the first laugh. His first yes, laugh, yeah. About five minutes into the play. Great. And then 
um, afterwards, seeing coming out afterwards, and he just looked at such happiness on his mm. face. And um, he was like, wow, you know, you've you've got it, you've really got it. Oh, how lovely to hear that from him. And then we went and had had dinner. And I think it was, there was a whole new thing that we could talk about then. Sure. That he was so excited about. Mm. Obviously, it was something that meant so much to him that he had something that he could, he could, he could use to relate to his child mm. and pass know. on yeah i mean was he was he like that was he someone who passed on he one of my favorite memories of stuff with him is sitting and being at a dinner table and um if the conversation started to sort of either was repeating itself or run dry he'd start to talk about the things that interested him now <laughs> you could get rugby which would be torture right and if, i mean in, in if he was in ireland Everyone would be delighted by that right, topic. Sure. But we'd be sitting there at the table in the Bahamas going, oh my God, he's going to talk what about the selection for the Irish rugby team. <laughs> you know? right? Or he would start to describe uh, performances that he'd seen. And I remember mm. him really clear. And he'd, then he'd act them out. Right. So I saw his version of uh, Olivier's Othello, his version of Olivier's Titus Andronicus, wow. his version of Patrick McGowan's Brand. Wow. His version of Peter O'Toole's uh, Petruchio, Tame of the Shrew. Wow. His version of... I mean, it was incredible. And but and I remember him really... And it's the things that stuck out in his mind, like the Coriolanus, the death scene in Coriolanus, which was very, very famous. Mm. Um, stuff like that. And he'd describe it to you and, you know, and, and then, you know, demonstrate what happened. And it was fantastic. Amazing. Or he'd sit there and he'd... Hamlet, he'd talk through... And that was one of his obsessions was Hamlet. Had he played it? No, and he, he'd wanted to. And he mm. always, he had the very, very complicated uh, and well thought out interpretation for his version of Hamlet, mm. which is um, uh, essentially a sort of a conspiracy theory, if you like. But uh, Really? A, a, yes, and that is that he, it's a kind of political, it's an act. Mm-hmm. And he's the ghost isn't real. He's hired the actor. Oh wow! To come and and stir things up is right. that kind of uh, presentation to it. to um, validate to him un- killing to unseat Claudius. Right, yes. right. Yeah, it, you run into other problems elsewhere, but you know when you start to become really dogmatic like that with anything in that play. But sure, uh, that's one of your other books. Well, that you picked, right? I, well, I. That, I wasn't. No. I I was gonna switch it out with, but but we'll, we've you got time. What, we can do a sixth. Of course, at the end. yes. Anything. Or do what? Yeah, absolutely. We believe me. People yeah. have smuggled in more are than they? one. Oh, yeah. okay. So go for it. But if you want to talk about Hamlet, tell me when you first read it or became aware of it. It's a tough question with Shakespeare. I always find because he's like wallpaper in one's life. I think. <sighs> yes. You don't know that well, you're, you're I, living with it. I remember very clearly studying at school in great detail King Lear The Winter's Tale and Antony and Cleopatra Um, and King Lear is the one that stuck out and then because and the sonnets in Mm -hmm. great detail the sonnets and then you obviously then sort of touch out to some of the famous other stuff Mm -hmm. because they're echoes of it and so they go you should read scene you know, act three scene four from Hamlet right. as part of your 
you know, co-study with this week's assignment or right. whatever, you know. But but um, the first time I ever saw it was um, was a film version of it, and that was Olivier's Hamlet. Yeah. And, you know, I was absolutely mesmerised by it. Were you? Yeah, because I never, you know, I didn't know what it was supposed to be, and, and he, obviously he cut a lot out of it. You were how old when you saw it? I was a teenager. I was, um, I think I was 17 or 18 when I saw it. With your dad? No, no. I saw it at school. Hmm. Um, and then and then I remember I saw Roger Reese's Hamlet, Simon Russell Beale's Hamlet. Hmm. Um, um, that was wonderful. The Peter Brook Hamlet. Um, uh, uh, what's his name that... So Russian. There was a period. I mean, Mark Rylance's Hamlet, and that's the one that just absolutely floored me. Right. I mean, I, I would, would love to have it, seen that. Were you? It was Fortinbras. Everyone no. was dead by the time. It was really funny. Jared, I didn't know yeah. that. So oh I watched it from a really early, really early stages. It was. I mean, it was. It was already almost completely developed by the time we started rehearsals because he'd been on tour oh, right. uh, with it as a sort of. A B tour, right? And 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 they had wanted to do an experimental Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? I know. What does it mean? <laughs> I, you know, not sort of traditional. Essentially, what they meant is that you didn't have to be the Byronic Hamlet. Okay. So you were allowed to you were allowed to be original. Okay. You know, because it was an experimental B tour. Got it. You know? I see. So it had done so well, and Mark, of course, had had a, had a relationship with the RSC for some time by that point please come and do it on the main stage. Mm. So they um, they recast a bunch of the roles because they didn't couldn't keep the actors. Mm-hmm. And um, and I came in and was fought in brass. But the first rehearsal that we went to was a run-through that started at the beginning of Act 2. And his Act 2 started with speak the speech, I pray you, um, trippingly on the tongue to the players. And it was one of the funniest things you've ever seen really because it was he basically started they staged it so that the they were rehearsing the play mm-hmm. and it's the bit that you see later on mm-hmm. so they they transpose that dialogue to that point of the play right. and he'd stop them and go no no no, no speak this he was giving direction he'd go okay <laughs> off you go again and then they'd start to do it again he goes no do not saw the air too much stuff with it because they were overacting you know and it was a sort of a wonderful little spoof on a, on a director trying to like get an actor to shed their bad habits you so know great. <laughs> it was really funny and it went all the way up to a bloody deed after he's killed Polonius and I just couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it um and uh you know I'd, or at that point I'd had you know I was going to play Hamlet do you know what I mean yeah. and then I saw that and went holy shit I'll stick with Fortin <laughs> yeah. holy shit and it remains to this day one of the most astounding things that I've ever seen. Isn't that interesting? Because I think one of my great theatrical moments if I can, is 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 watching Mark Rylance in Jerusalem, which yeah. I, is is really up there with I would say one of the great three experiences I've ever had yeah. in a theatre. I, I think there is yeah. there is something. I I, I feel like. I have no business writing actor in my passport when that's the same word that Mark Rylance is using because what we do is we're just doing different things. What he's doing on a stage, 
I don't know. You're just born with that, I think, the ability to channel energy like that, not to mention human beings, but just to literally incandescently let, mm. let energy pour through you in mm. that way is really extraordinary. Mm. I love that you were in Hamlet and I never knew it. Yeah, I was, it was great fun because, you know, it's, it's a long play. Yes, it's and, a long fucking wait to come on. By the, the time, you know, so you, you got to the, every night I'd hear, this is what would happen. It's been three hours plus, finally everybody's dead. Yeah. Hamlet's killed, you know. Horatio's has killed the king. Horatio's gone, um, you know, good night, sweet prince, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and a flights of angels sing me to the rest. And as that's happening, and I'm about to come on, because, you know, it's late. Yes. People are picking up their bags, <laughs> and you can hear bags <laughs> opening and car keys coming out, right? <laughs> and, and suddenly they hear, where is this sight? And boom, I come on the stage, and you just hear people, they go, what? what? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Back into the, the bag. Like, How long is this guy going to be now? It's a fucking completely new character. <laughs> <laughs> That's so yeah. funny. That is the worst possible <laughs> entrance sound. Is yeah. car keys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah, and no, I. I mean, I just. I. I. I did it myself in in a theatre in New Jersey. Did you? Yeah. I. Um, I. I was my gift to myself for my fortieth birthday. I, I, How very generous. Yes. <laughs> we managed to talk some people into doing it. It was. Part successful and part disaster. What worked? Absolute what disaster. Well, I'll tell you the disasters because they're always more amusing. Um, well, one that thing that was a disaster that was just heartbreaking really was... So we had this idea about how to do the ghost and and part of it involved... A sheet? Yes. <laughs> part of it involved filming a performance of the ghost mm-hmm. and and then projecting it. There was more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we got, I managed to persuade dad to do it. Wow. And he initially didn't, was very resistant to it, but then he finally agreed. I think mum said, you know, you're going to do it. I don't know why you're, why you're taking your time over this. Mm-hmm. He, he, Jared's asked you, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we got, we got him out to New York and filmed it over about three or four days. But, um, the who, there was a different sort of unit in charge of the filming production as opposed to theatrical production, and what we didn't know was that this producer was a complete joke, and uh, so we got all the visual stuff quite early on, but no sound, and we couldn't work out where's the sound. Oh, it should be on there, you know, and never the stuff that would be sent up to us mm. once we got up to to New Jersey would ne- it wasn't arriving, and finally when it did arrive, we realised why it hadn't been arriving. You could hear every fucking street noise from New York. So you'd hear the bus pulling up. Beep, beep, beep. All right, buddy, get off here. Like, this guy's supposed to be in hell, you know? <laughs> and so we had this huge problem with trying to fix it. Um, and when my father came and saw it, he, was just, he wasn't happy, but he said, I, you know, fine. But I, I, it was a nightmare when Dad was actually in there, knowing that it really wasn't exactly what we promised him. It was how it was going to be. Right. And there were many other problems that came along. What that did night. you like about the production, or what did what worked for you? Uh, uh, well, one of the things that we did, and it's the reason why 
this particular book is here is this is the and I got this while I was at Duke. I found it in a um, you know rare edition bookstore in Durham, North Carolina, and I knew that Dad was obviously obsessed with Hamlet, and I bought it for him as a gift. So when he died, I got it back. <laughs> I said to my brothers, I gave that to That's back. mine. What it is, is it's the 1603 and 1604 versions of Hamlet side by side. Oh, wow. So you can see how it changed. And annotated. Is that your notes in no, there? No, those aren't my notes. No. So whoever's... Uh, how and, beautiful. And one of the things about it is, is that to be or not to be is in a completely different place in the earlier version. Oh, how interesting. And the earlier version is very obviously... It's the bad quarto, and it's very obviously someone who sat down and quickly scribbled notes as they were watching the play. Right. So, for example, you've got the... Uh, I'll find it. Um, we have the, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here, if, I, if you've got time, if I can find it. Sure. So, here we go. So... To be or not to be comes before Oh What a Rogan Peasant Slave. Mm-hmm. And and you can tell it was the um, someone sitting down taking quick notes. Here's to be or not to be. To be or not to be, I, there's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? I, all. No, to sleep, to dream. I, I, Mary, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But for this, right, okay. completely different. Yeah. And here's, oh, what a rogue peasant slave. Why, what a dunghill idiot slave am I? Why these players here draw water from eyes for Hecuba? Why, what is Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? You know, so what, you, what that tells... Well, obviously, this, the 1603 version, it, he wouldn't have gotten the order of the scenes wrong. Right. But he would have paraphrased what he remembered seeing and there were no copyright laws back then sure. so you could write it and do it. The second version is mu- is longer mm-hmm. and 1604 much more faithful to what we understand as being the text. And and there the scenes are juxtaposed. So to answer the long-winded way of answering your question, I moved to be or not to be. So it was the first thing that you saw Uh of him after Act One, after mm. he'd had that scene on the battlements, and right. he'd said, you know, I'm going to go and enact this vengeance. So really, the speech itself becomes a kind of apology to the audience. Mm. And it was a direct address to the audience. Mm. Uh, we turned all the house lights on. Did you? And he was basically, the argument was, look, I haven't done it. Right. And the last time you saw me, I had I said I was, I was going I, to, I, you know, <laughs> my thoughts be bloody or be nothing else. That thing mm. was right, and uh, and you're going to judge me, but if you think about all the different things that you would do in your life if it weren't for that pesky thing, conscience, yeah, you would be free, yeah. and I am trapped as well, yeah. And that the whole end of uh, you know, the um, uh, the end of that speech is. Uh, Thus, conscience doesn't make cowards of us, of us all. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the native human resolution is cyclical by the pale cast of thought. And uh, an enterprise is a great picture moment with this regard. Lose, 
for how it goes. But anyway, yeah, that bit. <laughs> and so then at the end, bang, put the sword in the ground and leave it there, mm. waiting to be picked up. So that, we did that. That was really good. We had this really interesting thing that the director had about... So there's a lot of people spying on each other in the play. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he put those people, rather than sort of hiding them in the back, he put them right to the front of the audience. Mm-hmm. And so you saw the people being spied on through their point of view. Mm, lovely. Yeah. So that makes all the audience spies too. Yeah. makes you complicit with yeah. them. That's great. Um, and then there was another like, like great funny disaster bit as well was a, uh, uh, so there's that famous bit in the bedroom scene. Uh, look upon this picture and upon this picture here, the counterfeit presentments of two brothers, uh, the uncle and the father, right? right? Where the fuck do these pictures come from? So I think it was either Irving or Garrick that started that tradition of he has a, a medallion around his neck mm-hmm. of his father and he yanks that one off and she has one or something of, of Claudius and so he holds up these two medallions right. or sometimes he's holding he keeps a picture about his person of, of the father and she has one on her mantelpiece of Claudius or some mm-hmm. other artificial way I said no it's money it's currency oh great because Claudius has already had currency printed with, with, it, with an image on that's it that's great and, yeah. and neither the Queen or Hamlet would have money but Polonius we know has because mm-hmm. he's given money to Ronaldo to spy on his son in Paris right so and and Polonius is dead behind the curtain. Right. So he's got money. So we'll get money off of Polonius, right? <laughs> That's great. And uh, and the guy who was playing Polonius, I forgot his name now. He was really really good, and he 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 played the part. He got all the humour, but without being an idiot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, which is always one of the tricky things about that role, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I and I and I knew the audience was going to like him and enjoy him. So I thought, well, he deserves to die in the prep. The audience have earned it. He's earned right. it to see that event happen rather than being hidden away. Mm-hmm. So when I pull the curtain back and I see who it is, oh, they're a wretched, rash, intruding fool, you know. And I go down and I pick him up so he can die with the audience seeing him. And he, so he do this. <laughs> Die, right? <laughs> so I pick him up on the first night and I hold him up and he goes <laughs> I forgot the coin <laughs> Jared is too good it's too good I forgot the coins <laughs> But a professional to his dying breath. Yeah. So at least you're not patting him down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't coins. <laughs> That's so great, that story. So what the fuck did you do? I just had to fucking act out. Yeah. You know, had yeah. to act them both of them out. You know. Yes, of course. Oh, that is too good. <laughs> Talk to me about your last book, whichever one it is that you want it to be. Uh, oh, well, then I would say, well, I've got two more, haven't I? Um, you have... It's not Hamlet in his next Yes, exactly. So uh, you've got two more. Because I have to choose between the two of them. That would be tough. Which right. would be that? Well, the next one probably would be... Um, 
Campbell book, I think, would have been the next one. Okay. So the ne- ne- your next book is Reflections on the Art of Living, which was published in 1995, actually published by Diane Osborne, but is um, a collection of uh, Joseph Campbell's thoughts and lectures and yeah, it, extracts, right? Uh, yes. I think it was, it was from this uh, series of lectures that he gave at the S... Esselin Institute, mm, yeah, and it was someone who had been with him during that course of study, and and was an assistant here or something, and wrote them all down and collected them. But it really was a sort of, it was a very digestible, uh, um, uh, sort of roundup of of what his entire life had had been around. Because if you've read the um, you know the, the the thing about the myths and the, mm-hmm. the 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 hero with a thousand face and all that stuff. It's incredibly academic, mm-hmm. and this one is. It has that academic sort of structure and side part to it, but it's told through experiences and anecdotes and stuff like that. Yeah. So that and it's how he, as he was living his life, how he related it to these various myths and that he'd studied and and the cultures that he'd studied and um was it your first experience with him yeah i heard you know you hear about him of course course, and and because of star wars he had suddenly become at at a certain point you know people had thought oh that's the secret somehow if you read his book you'd be able to write massive hit movies or something yeah uh um but uh and what what i found fascinating about it was um it was it was really instructional in a way of when you found you find yourself as you you know we have sort of different operating principles at different parts of our lives mm-hmm. and and they stop working mm. you know and you, you you kind of suddenly start to reorganize your how you how you operate and how you view the world when you're 20 and then when you're approaching 30 the sort of the roof, the wheels fall off, and you have to figure it all out all over again. And mm-hmm. So I found it, it happened to me. It came to me at, at a point like that, and it was very, really useful. Who gave it to you? Do you remember, or did you just stumble on it? An ex, mm-hmm. an ex gave it to me, um, and um, it was. I, I mean, it's, this is slightly thematic to stuff we talked about beforehand, but that I don't being brought up Catholic and um, Catholic boarding schools with monks around mm-hmm. and everything that I this huge monkey on my back mm-hmm. and I, I I was always struggling with it um, and I I couldn't I didn't have the tools to to figure out what the problem with it was but it was something that was wrong with it and it was I remember clear as a bell I remember even the part that I read where it, it rang, it was like, oh God, that's what's been bothering me about it. Hmm. And he was talking about, because he, he studied all these different religions and different cultures and different philosophies. And, you know, he has things about the Grail myth and he has things about um, uh, Hinduism. And um, so, uh, so here in this chapter, he talks about Hinduism and he says that, uh, uh, in, Hin- in Hinduism, the origin of the god Vishnu is that of love. In the Vishnu way of analysing love, there are five degrees of love and a model that represents each of these different stages. 
the whole discipline of seeking and achieving illumination can be conducted from the energy of this channel. And he's talking about the chakras, mm-hmm. you know. He sort of ties all these different things in together. Mm-hmm. The first degree of love, that of servant to master, is a low degree of love. Oh Lord, you are the master, I am the servant. Tell me what I must do and I shall do it. This is the way of the religion of law, where there are a lot of commands, 10 commandments, 1,000 commandments, 110,000 commandments. It is a religion of fear. You have not awakened to the divine presence. Uh, basically, it's the idea is, you know, love me or I'll roast you in the fiery pits of hell for right. eternity. Right. It's not much of a choice. Right. You know? No, it's... Uh, and I suddenly went from there and went, oh, God, that's what's been bothering me about this. And, and I remember really clearly was that reading that part, mm. I, suddenly the whole book sort of burst open to Opened me. There's yeah. all these different things in there that were fascinating. Um, I love him. He's been a huge influence for me too. I found him um, in my 20s and then really discovered him, weirdly enough, when I did a play on Broadway. I did Frost Nixon eight yeah. years ago or something. Mm. And uh, was having a tough time with it, was not happy. <laughs> And thought I was going mad. I mean, I really did. And I kept thinking, but this is what I love. And this is, you know, for years. And back in London, I'd done theatre for years before I'd gone anywhere near a TV set. And I couldn't make sense of what was happening. I was really backstage feeling like I'm going out of my mind. And some of that is just the sheer act of repeating yourself Mm -hmm. every single night, you know, eight Mm. shows a week. There is something insane about doing that. Unless you can find a sort of, method to the madness unless mm. you can find a way through it so I became a Joe Campbell addict and my entire dressing room was just wall-to-wall books mm. of his and um what was his he gave me so I'm gonna I'm blanking now on the quote he gave me the most fantastic insight into the way through it which at the time I wanted tattooed on my wrist and of course now I've forgotten it I'll, it'll come to me in a minute I, I knew it when I started this anecdote spaces, no it wasn't no. it was much much more practical than that um Anyway, it was just mm. to say it was it was it was lovely to see him on your list because he hasn't come up yet in the podcast, no. and he's he seems to me for those of us who are storytellers um, so important, such an really? important person in that. Yeah, he's, and everything is told through stories, through anecdotes, right. through experiences. Um, uh, I quoted him to a girlfriend just the other day. She she's been away for a while. And she was coming back to family and kids and husband and all of that. And we were talking about how bumpy re-entry always is. And I said, and I say this one often too, he has this beautiful quote, which is, the soul moves at the pace of a camel. And I think it's so helpful, particularly as a traveling actor, mm. to remember that, that just because a jet brought you back mm. and you're back 24 hours later and immersed yeah. in your your world, yeah. your soul is still trudging somewhere over the Apennines yeah. or the Appalachians yeah. or something. Yeah. It doesn't, just because your body moves that yeah. fast doesn't mean your soul is caught up. And yeah. it's been a really, that's been another quote of his that I've treasured. There's another one here that I loved was, was, uh, was this one about... Uh, the Schopenhauer. The universe is a dream dreamed by a single dreamer where all the dream characters dream too. <laughs> <laughs> That's like an Isha painting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Impossible to get your like, head around. It's fantastic. It's yeah. great. Uh, but I mean, it's full of little, the whole thing's full of nuggets like that and anecdotes and stories and mm-hmm. lessons. And yeah, I find that fascinating. It's the sort of thing that you can, you can just open on any part and just read that bit or you can start again from the beginning and you can find that now 
say that chapter about the the Vishnu thing, that bit doesn't whack me as hard as it is, but some other part in there is going to, because you've you've caught up with a I different know. part Isn't of it. I know, isn't it fun that, I love that element of rereading, I really do, and I find particularly rereading non-fiction, you get you realize what struck you and i love reading books that i read at oxford which was when i was just shamelessly annotating anything and didn't mm. mind about pencil marks and margins and i think wow that that was the salient point that was yes. what that was what mattered to you at 21 yeah. that's fascinating yeah. yeah um talk to me about your last book the last book michael crichton's book called travels which was a book i'd never heard of oh. and i had a really good time researching it tell me about it it so, was published in 1988 yes so I had I would become a, 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 a consumer of Michael Crichton's fiction, and I forget which story brought me into that. But I really appreciated in his fiction how well researched all the science was, mm. and and then when I started to sort of investigate who he was, it turns out that he had started life out as a scientist. Mm. He was a doctor. And he'd start Harvard, no less. Yeah, and he was a uh, so he he had that he was a very practical mind. It was uh, cause and effect based, you know. Um, and at, at a certain point, he describes being at um, I forget where he was when he was a an intern, and he developed this interest in fiction, and he'd written something. He had to keep it a secret. He had to write it under a pseudonym because if they'd known he was writing as well, they'd go, well, obviously you're not working hard enough. You know, you shouldn't have time to be able to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he ends up getting pulled out to Hollywood. And he so he starts to write down his experiences. And it, so Travel starts out as a very practical story about him traveling from starting out being someone who's studying medicine and being interested in medicine to his journey to Hollywood and what that world was mm-hmm. like making um making his uh, making a movie uh and then it's become he he then starts he 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 always liked to travel so he goes around the world to different places when he has time off for no other reason than I'm just going to go there and um so travels is it's not just it's not just the journey of a sort of of a, of a life or a travelogue, but then he starts to get into different sorts of journeys that you could make. So you're making personal journeys. Mm-hmm. You're making you know uh, journeys that are to do with psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. You're doing spiritual journeys. Mm-hmm. You're doing metaphysical journeys because he starts to investigate. Well, let's see whether or not there's a psych- psychic center. Whilst he's making um, the great train robbery mm-hmm. with Sean Connery in in London, and there's this house off of Belgrave Square that's a very famous psychic center, and um, which he hears about, and he goes, "Right, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to conduct my own test and see whether or not this is full of shit or not." And so he does, and he goes there, and he's he won't play the game because he's figured out what the game is and how they read you. And so he gives them false information and everything. So he conducts his own blind test, if you like. Mm-hmm. And he records it. And he gives you exactly what happened. This was bullshit, but this I can't explain how wow. that worked out. You right. know? And he starts to describe it. So it's, it's a really interesting journey in that sense. But, uh, but And great stories, again. I mean, mm. he has a, a story about um, climbing Kilimanjaro. And... Uh, and he arrives to go and climb Kilimanjaro and everyone would either people about to go up or coming back down meet at this there's only one place a hotel a little restaurant mm-hmm. and he sees a group of people there and 
he's really excited and gung ho and he's fit and everything. I'm just gonna climb the goddamn mountain. I'm gonna beat this fucking mountain. I'm gonna this goddamn mountain. And he sees some people who have just come down. He goes, they just come down. He goes, how was it? How was it? And they were like, yeah, it was, it was all right. He's like, what the fuck? You mean it was all right? You climbed the goddamn mountain. You know, it's like, it was all right. You know? <laughs> And so he describes the whole journey going up, how fucking hard it is, even though you're not climbing, you're walking the whole way. And so when he came down, he gets asked the same question (laughs) when he's sitting in the restaurant. And all he could muster was, yeah, it's all right. You know, because it took took so much out of him that he's not quite sure whether it was worth it or not. But it was so difficult to do, you know. And at the end, it was about willpower or something, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, When did you read it? Do you remember? I I was was living in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Living in New York in the... Like the late 90s. It was around about then, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and again, another great book that you can just pop open and just read that. It's, it's, it's I think it's maybe about twenty different short stories, if you like. Yeah, no, I was fascinated journeys. by it. I loved, I loved, I loved reading it. And I also had a, had a quick look at his website afterwards because he talked. He has a little bit on it about his process of writing the book. Then he said that the process of writing it was so different from all his others that it was his first attempt at autobiography or memoir. And that the others he writes in these intense four to six weeks bursts and then leaves them, writes an entire mm. novel in four to six weeks and then leaves them for months and months and then goes away and comes back mm. and looks at it. Whereas this took him six agonizing months to do, um, but that he was surprised by how much he kept intact. Mm. He pulled bits out for legal reasons, but otherwise he kept it. <laughs> Whereas the four to six week writing process involves basically a huge rewrite when he eventually right. comes back to it. So that was interesting. Um, you get one book on your desert island. Which one is it? Oh, no. Yeah, you get one. No, yes. you didn't tell me no, that. No, it's the ambush. Oh, God. <laughs> Doesn't have to, it can be one of not these. It can be a different one. Because these are the books that shaped you, not necessarily your favourite, but you can take one on your desert island. Wow. I know. It's a sucker punch at the end. It is, really. <laughs> um... I mean, I'm not actually going to put you on a desert yeah. island just yes, to help I know. you out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm really going to. I would not take Michael's shirtless book audition because okay, there would be no like point sensible, having that seems a, a practical manual for acting or auditioning on a desert island because I'm pretty sure I'd get the part. <laughs> there was an audition process on the desert island <laughs> on it by myself. I'm sorry. It'd be devastating if you weren't landing. We're looking for somebody else. (laughs) So we went a different direction. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I don't know. It'd be hard not to take my mother's book. Well, yeah. But um, but then you know those stories, so maybe you don't need to. Yeah. No, you tell me. I'm not telling you. Yeah. I take my mother's book. There you go. Lovely. Jared Harris, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jared Harris, and you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share one of the interviews on social media, send someone an email to tell them you liked it, put up a poster, feel free to do that, just saying Bookish, and let them figure it out. All the music is created and performed by my multi-talented husband, Davy Holmes, and the show is produced by the excellent Joe Batanz. Join me next week for my interview with me, Wait, what? Yes, hang on. 
back up. Next week, it's me in the hot seat and it's Joe's turn to grill me. I was actually nervous doing this, uh, but you shouldn't be because Joe is an excellent interviewer and uh, I love to talk. So it's pretty fun. Listen and see what you think. <laughs>